Amen. Children, you can, uh, you're dismissed to go down to Sunday school downstairs if you'd like. Or you can stay up here and listen to me. It's your choice. <laughs> you can go downstairs. Uh, all right. We're going to be back in Ecclesiastes this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We left off last week in, uh, in verse 7, so we'll pick back up in verse 8. And the title of this message this morning is Finding Our Meaning in God's Purpose. Um, ultimately, we're, we're, at a, we're in a war, a spiritual battle for the hearts of, and souls of mankind. Uh, and uh, th- this book of Ecclesiastes was written uh, more than likely 10th century B.C. by King Solomon and uh, has this message of uh, this really important message of understanding that without God and what he's doing in his creation, without his purpose, life is meaningless. And even though it was written so long ago, we stand today in 2021 in a, in a civilization, a society in the American culture and around the world where God con- is continually being denied and rejected and rebelled against. And instead, uh, the philosophies of man and philosophies of man-made religion abound and deny God's existence and God's purpose in life. And the war is raging because God is at work. God does have a purpose. And we as his church, as Christ's church, are the ambassadors in which we stand in a dark and broken and evil world and we proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save those who are lost, which would be all of mankind. All of us are born separated from God, rebelling in our hearts against God, and it is only through God's gracious act of sending his Son into this world God manifested in the flesh, him living the law, the standard, the, the holiness that God has set in the uh, Old Testament covenant, living that law perfectly, meeting God's standard, the only person that could do it because he was not born of the first Adam like you and I were, but he was born of God, of the Holy Spirit. And he lived the law perfectly, only to go to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And if he had no sin because he was God, he paid the penalty for our sin. For anyone and everyone who will believe and trust in Christ's accomplished work, this brokenness, this evil that surrounds us, that the darkness that we see in this world, um, can be, we can be rescued and saved from it. Right? Jesus told Peter, the, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are God's ambassadors. We have the good news. We have the eternally saving news to this world who continually rejects and denies God and his existence. And even though this letter was written so long ago, it's so important for us to understand the attitude of, of, uh, and philosophies of man, how they're truly at war with God and his purposes. And we are to stand in the gap. We were to stand for good, ultimately. And to find meaning in God's purposes and what he's created. And that's where I want to get to this morning in this sermon. And that's why I started off with the gospel. Because it is the gospel. It is not your political party's affiliation. It is not a good humanitarian program that's going to save 
this world from the evils and oppression and the sin of this world, the darkness that we see. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what God's purpose is in this world, to seek and to save those who are lost. And I stand here this morning, as many of you sit here this morning, thankful that God has demonstrated his love by sending his son to pay the penalty for us so that we could then have his righteousness applied to our account. Vicariously, he stood in the gap and took the penalty so that we might be made given the righteousness of God, 1 Corinthians 5.21. When God looks at me now, in spite of my sin, he sees the righteousness of Christ, not because I am righteous at all, but because Christ stood in my place. He paid my penalty for me. That is the good news for you as well. Christ stood in your place. He was your vicar. And you can have not only meaning and purpose in this life, but live your life out in God's meaning and purpose for his creation and ultimately for his glory in the gospel of Jesus. And so if you don't get anything else this morning, that is my heart and my hope that all who are in the sound of my voice this morning would have a saving encounter with Jesus, would see their need to encounter Jesus and believe and trust in him alone, to turn from anything else that you've placed in your faith, your good works, your religion, uh, your denial of him, and trust in Christ's work alone. And I say that knowing that it's going to be the Spirit of God who will do that work in you. My only job is to proclaim it and to testify of its veracity and truth. All right, we're done. Let's go ahead and dismiss now. I say that because this is a very difficult passage that we're going to be going through. Ecclesiastes, end of uh, chapter 6, end of uh, 7. And so um, it can be easy to kind of get lost in, in what's going on here. But again, Ecclesiastes is writing this letter. Uh, so Ecclesiastes, well, the, Solomon is writing the letter of Ecclesiastes. And he's using um, creative language in doing so. He's arguing from the negative um, trying to demonstrate to people, to his readers, to ultimately the, uh, the inspired words found here uh, is the Holy Spirit trying to demonstrate to us how foolish it is to try to find meaning and purpose outside of who God is and what he's doing. And so Solomon uses this letter to argue from the negative. He says, I have wisdom, I have wealth, I have all these things that the world says you need to have meaning and purpose, and I find it foolishness and vanity. It's all futile, he says. Because life under the sun outside and not considering what God is doing in his creation will ultimately lead to that. And in 2021, we have a society that continues to try to find meaning and purpose in and of themselves and not of God. And that's where we find the crux here. And so Solomon is saying, look, I have all these things. We've gone through the first five, uh, six, five and a half chapters, I should say. And we've seen um, Solomon ultimately coming to this place of frustration, right? He, we see these cross uh, paths of him giving a little bit of um, uh, like uh, positivity. Like, I know God's in this, but why is God allowing these, this oppression to happen? And he has these cross currents, right, of optimism and pessimism. And he's using his language in this letter to demonstrate his frustration. The battle that he's having is trying to understand what the meaning and purpose of life is. And so sometimes we see optimism in his writings. And sometimes we see pessimism. And we finished last week with, with the third negative of trying to establish your meaning and purpose and the amount of wealth that you have. 
right? He says, uh, previously he said, God's given us the stuff so we should enjoy it. The wealth and the, the money that we have, we should enjoy it. But then he gets frustrated at the fact that he could, you can't really enjoy it, right? And he gave two, I'm just re- re- recapping what he was saying last week or what we covered last week because it's important to have that context as we go into chapter 7 because he's about to give us some wise sayings, some proverbial sayings and in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, but as you begin to look at them, some of them are pretty good, and we can, uh, we can glean the wisdom pretty easily, but some of them are like, what? Wait, what's going on here? And it's, again, him demonstrating this idea, the struggle that he's having with meaning and purpose in life. And so he's, he got to the point where we covered last week where he said, it's almost better. He, he told us that wealth, uh, um, I forgot my own sermon, right? The... the uh, the, the, the problem with wealth is that it's, it's, it's not, it's temporary, right? It's fleeting. It can just disappear. So if you're working your whole life to, to establish meaning and purpose in your wealth, it can just be gone tomorrow, right? And then ultimately, he's, we ended up about the, the last week about the fact that a person who's seeking after not only wealth, but anything that's not of God and not God leads a person to, into a life of anxiety and worry, Right and sleeplessness, lack of rest, because they're always worried. In the person, in the case of a wealthy person, they're always worried about gaining more wealth or losing their wealth, and so they lay awake at night, sleepless. And so he he, he gave us this warning, these warnings, and he says, ultimately he concluded it's better. Right, and this is this is harsh language. It's better that a, that a stillborn baby not be born, because at least they don't have to put up with the toil and the struggle that is found in this world. Right? Living life in this, uh, in this world is tough. We live in a cursed world and it's broken and there's sin and evil abounds. And, and we have, even as God's people, trials and tribulations. And often we can, we can be like Solomon going, God, what is going on? I don't understand. I don't understand. And Solomon's bringing this to, to the forefront. So let's go ahead, as we have that context and meaning of what Solomon's trying to portray in Ecclesiastes, let's go ahead and beginning in verse 8 of chapter 6 and read through what, what he's, these are some concluding thoughts. If you've been with us um, through Ecclesiastes, you know he's already brought these things up before. And so he's, he's kind of recapping some, some things he's already laid out in this letter, in this book of Ecclesiastes for us. But it's a good reminder for us. He says in verse 8, What advantage then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile in the pursuit of the wind. So he's in verse 8 he's saying, what advantage, right? He's already said this. There's no advantage for a person that has a lot of wisdom or a lot of wealth over the poor person. Because ultimately, they all both end up in the same place. And that's dead. In the grave. And so if our understanding of this world and the meaning and purpose of it is just limited to this world, then that's the ultimate conclusion. There is no meaning and purpose. Because both rich, poor, foolish, wise, all wind up dead. And verse 9 tells us, look, it's better to be honest about this, right? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. We can desire as much as we want to have peace around the world and, and, you know, kumbaya and all that stuff, but let's face it. Let's look with our eyes and see reality before us. A society that continues to deny God 
and his purposes, rebel against him, lift up mankind over the orthodox view of who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture. It's just, let's just be honest. Better what the eye see than wanderings are. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Verse 10, whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known what mankind is. So he's, again, going back to the idea that he sees history as circular, right? It's just cyclical like the seasons, right? We have spring and we have summer, we have fall, we have winter. They're all cyclical. We can, we can pretty much count on the fact that the sun's going to rise again tomorrow. And he says it's the same thing with humanity, right? We, we are, we're young, we think we're, we're, we can't die, and we, we, we live our lives, and then we die. And whatever we have is left to the next person behind us. And it's just circular in his eyes. as you're, He's viewing from his eyes what he, is going on in this world. And we covered that. But thankfully, and he mentions God. Again, he's given us a subtle hint. But he, that is the person, the mankind, he or she, is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. Uh, most scholars would say that he's kind of giving a, a reference to God there, right? He's, we know God is transcendent above his creation. And so he's nodding to the fact that God is above all this. But for us, in our paradigm, in our lenses, as we look at life without considering God, right, it just seems circular. Like I told you many times, my dad, before he um, was diagnosed with cancer, said, I'm just going to become worm feed. And that's what's going to be the end of me, right? And, but then he was presented with his death, and the Spirit of God did a, an amazing work. And, uh, and I, I'm confident I'm going to see my dad um, in heaven because God did an amazing work. But that, but that, that idea of just turning into worm that is the idea of just circular, no, no meaning or purpose. <clears throat> Verse 11, For when there are many words, uh, when, there, when there are many words, they increase in futility. What is the advantage for mankind? So he's saying, look, the guy we talked about going into the temple, he's, he's covered this already, and the guy that's trying to cover his sin by you know, standing up and spouting out many, uh, pontificating many words, right? That's all futile. It's all just uh, trying to wrestle the wind. It's all vain. What is the advantage of mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life? In the few days, his futile life that he spends like a shadow. And that's ultimately what it comes down to, right? Without God's special revelation, without God giving, him, giving us his revelation of what he's doing and what his purposes is, are in this creation, um, mankind is left to conclude, who knows what the future holds? For who knows what is good for anyone in life? Men, mankind without God and his purposes are left to their own desires. They will do what they deem is good in their own eyes, as the book of Judges proclaims. Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? And so Solomon's taking us to this conclusion of, look, there's no meaning and purpose in this world. If we're our purpose, if what we're here for is just to work and to labor and to gain wealth and to have wisdom, we can be as, as smart as we, we need to want to be, but ultimately, if we all just die, then there is no purpose. And that is what we see in our society today. 
And what I'm trying to bring us to the, to the, the to what I'm trying to pull out of the text and bring application for us today is that th- this, is, this is what our children <laughs> are being faced with. This is what is being taught to them. As they go to school, my, my junior hire said that the, she got so mad at her science teacher because he spent the entire hour demonstrating the folly of the Judeo-Christian understanding of creation. And thankfully, she got mad. She got angry because she, she knew it was against what God has revealed. And there, there are answers, right? There's a, there's a whole uh, apologetic out there answering the claims that uh, the Judeo-Christian understanding of creation um, doesn't line up with science. It's all about the science. Oh, did I go there? Sorry. It's nonsense, exactly. God has revealed himself. He has made himself known. Every word of God is inspired by God. And it is profitable for instruction, for righteousness. As he said, Paul said to Timothy, for your salvation. We have an amazing gift given to us in God's word, but yet the culture around us is increasingly becoming atheistic that there is no God, that we are ourselves God, that we make meaning and purpose in life uh, in our own view and in our own mind. Um, so an atheist says there is no God. We, this, all this happened just by right in the beginning there was nothing, and somehow nothing turned to something, and that something metamorphically just magically reappeared as something bigger, and then next thing you know we have this wonderful creation after you need lots of time for that to happen just by chance. So you need billions and billions and hundreds of billions of years for that to happen. Nonsense. As opposed to looking at this beautiful creation, even though it's cursed, in a cursed sense, we see God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says, Psalm 19. But yet, our children are being taught, right? He said straight out. He didn't say, my perspective is that the Judeo-Christians don't have it right. No, he said, it's a fact that the Judeo-Christians don't have it right. And so what does that lead to, right? So we have this concept of creation without God. So it leads to a humanity or society, a culture, a world that says, well, if there's no meaning and purpose in our lives because we're just an accident, if we're just fizzling goo, then there's really no real meaning for morality or, or society or, or anything. We can just... Do whatever we want to do, whatever, right? The, the whole logical fallacy of argumentum ad populum, where the, as long as everybody is in agreement, the majority is in agreement, that is what's right. That is fallacious. But that is what this world is turning into. The people that scream the most are the ones that hold the truth and the power and the influence. It's this idea of nihilism. Well, if there's no God and there's no purpose, there's no... Uh, existential purpose for, for this world and our creation, then there's no true meaning for existence of knowledge or truth. We can't, right? we can't really define truth because it's all just concocted in our heads. And this is, <laughs> this is what our kids are being faced with. The denial of the existence of any basis for knowledge or truth. And, and I'm, I'm not just saying that. I mean, you can go online to do YouTube. Uh, Todd Friel 
He goes to colleges, campuses. He engages campus students. There's, uh, there's, there's a couple others that I can't remember at the mo- top, off my, top of my head, but you can come and talk to me afterwards. You can go to YouTube. You can see these Christian apologists go into the campuses, and those students line up one after another and try to defend the... I almost said, said a bad word. Almost. The junk. Defend the junk that they're being taught in the classroom. And it's this idea that there's no true purpose, there's no, uh, no true uh, definition of truth or knowledge, that it's all just concocted, whatever it is that we want it to be, right? Let it be the general rejection of customary beliefs and morality and religion. These, these are what Marxism and communism play off of, the, the existentialist understanding that there's no reality, and so we have to make reality, and we need to, to attack the, the traditional institutions of society to, to in order to progress because there's no true meaning of truth or... Uh, I'm getting riled up here. The belief that there is no meaning or purpose in existence, and that breaks my heart because there is true meaning and purpose to be found in what God is doing. And so we, as the church, need to stand for God and for his purposes and for his truth. But Solomon is getting to the point where he's, and he, what he's essentially shown us is this is where mankind naturally goes without God. The God of self. This is where it happened in 10th century B.C., right? It's happening in 2021. It happened in the time of the judges. Every man was doing right according to their own eyes. This is where society goes without putting God on the throne. And that's why Solomon concluded in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He gave us his conclusion at the very beginning of this book. Absolute futility, says the teacher. That's the preacher, the proclaimer, that's Solomon. Absolute futility. Futility or vanity is the the Hebrew word is like trying to wrestle the wind. You're not going to succeed. You can try and try again, but you're never going to succeed. And he says, as I look at life, as I use the wisdom God has given me, as I reason with, my, with what he's done, I've concluded all is futile. Everything is futile. Verse 3, what does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? And so it's this idea, Solomon's bringing this to this idea that, look, if you don't consider God and what he's doing, if you don't put him on the throne and understand that he's created this for his glory and living in the fear of God, right, living with the understanding of who God is, then life truly is vain. And the sad part of that is it's not just a vain life here. That mentality, that understanding, that belief leads to eternal damnation, an eternity separated from God. And that's why the good news, the gospel is such good news. Because God has demonstrated his love to us to save us from what we truly deserve. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? So Solomon's coming to this idea of existentialism or nihilism where there's no meaning and purpose, all right, all is vanity. And so getting into Ecclesiastes chapter 7, he's giving us these proverbial sayings here. We have 13 of them, I believe. 
And so if we were just to parachute into Ecclesiastes chapter 7 without understanding the context of what Solomon's trying to do, we will read these and go, what on earth? That's not wise, right? But we now know what, that Solomon's struggling. He's trying to show the fact that um, what wisdom really doesn't mount up to anything unless you have God at the center. So he says this, a good name is better than fine perfume. He says that even in Proverbs. Uh, Solomon also wrote the book of Proverbs, which are a little more straightforward. They're, he doesn't use irony. He doesn't use um, um, arguing from the negative uh, in Proverbs as much as he does in Ecclesiastes. So the first one we can, we can take pretty easily, right? A good name is better than fine perfume. So he's saying a good name, having integrity, that's greater than, than having riches, a good name is to be chosen over great wealth, he says in Proverbs 22. So to, to live your life with integrity, to have a good name in the world is better than riches and wealth. That's an amazing thing. Favor is better than silver and gold, he says in Proverbs 22.1. But here he says a good name is better than fine perfume. We understand that. We believe that. That's pretty easy to accept. But then he says this, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. What? How can it be better to be dead than alive? Well, we know the context. Solomon's brought us to the point where he said it's better that a stillborn baby be not born than have to toil and struggle in this world. So he's using irony here to demonstrate the point that wisdom and, and riches are just folly if that's really that all this world is all about. Um, there's Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, that It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. Since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Wait, what? How is it wise to want to be, be to be better to go to the house of mourning? That's the place where you would go for someone who dies to mourn over them. Solomon says it's wise. the The wise thing is to it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Why? Because he's already concluded the fact that that's where we all end up anyway. So any time you go to the house of feasting, it's just temporary. It's not lasting. So it's just wise just to stay. Stay where you're going to end up anyway, in the house of mourning, because that's the conclusion of death, life in this earth. And the living should take it to heart, right? We should take these things to heart. It's, it's a, a sad demonstration of, of what it, uh, finding meaning, or living this life in that, with that understanding that there is no meaning and purpose. Uh, Nietzsche is the, one of the more um, uh, well-known nihilists, and he, he, he kind of echoes what Solomon is just saying there. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. That's, that's what life is all about. To live means you're going to suffer, and somehow you've got to find meaning in your suffering. What a sad sense of understanding of reality where humanity takes us outside of the purposes of God. Verse 3, grief is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. This, this one's difficult. I struggle with this one. But I think ultimately what he's saying is, is look, grief is where we're going to end up anyway. So let's just stay in grief. It's better than laughter because laughter is just temporary. They're all going to end up with grief. And he, the next part of this is, is, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. You know, and I think that speaks to the fact that we get really good at covering what's really going on inside, right? We can, um, in... Proverbs 3.13, Solomon put it this way, even in laughter, your heart may be sad. So someone can come in laughing, carrying on jovial, right, in their community, but deep down, they're broken. 
They're dying inside. And so a wise person says, look, just be who you are. Stay in grief because that's where you're going to end up in anyway. You guys being lifted up and encouraged this morning in this wonderful text. He goes on to examine wisdom again in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, right? To be wise is to be the person that is wise is in the house of mourning because that's ultimately where we end up. But the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. You're just fooling yourself if you think your life is about seeking meaning and purpose and pleasure. Verse 5, it is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to song from fools. And this one's pretty straightforward, right? It's better to listen to rebuke from a wise person, someone that's wise, has knowledge, and has uh, lived out that knowledge and, and can tell you, look, you're doing something wrong. It is good to take that person's rebuke other than surrounding yourself with people that won't call you out and will just sing your praises, it is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, the, the foolish person who just wants to give you, tell you anything you want to hear about yourself, right? And he gives us a, a, an illustration of what that truly is like, to surround yourself with foolish people who have no meaning and purpose, who just want to enforce, reinforce your idea that you have no meaning and purpose uh, outside of just you know, living life. Um, Solomon says in verse 6, it's like, uh, listening to the crackling of burning thorns under the pot. Right? Everyone's been in a campfire and hissing that pop, pop, pop. It's a loud noise. It's exciting, but it's quick. It ends quickly, and there's nothing left. It's futile. The praise of people, the praise of fools, people telling you what you want to hear, that's, that's the argu- argumentum ad populum, right? Surrounding yourself with people that believe the same way and saying, look, we're right because we're the loudest about it is foolish. Verse 7, surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool, right? He's, he's the king of Jerusalem. He has everything at his disposal, and he says the greatest tragedy in the previous passages that we've already covered is the fact that the very people that can deliver the oppressed from being oppressed and the poor from being poor are the ones that have the wealth and the influence. They have the ability to, the ones that are, have the wealth and influence are the ones doing the oppressing, and so you can be the wisest person in the world. And he gave us an example in uh, Ecclesiastes 3 of a, a king who started out young and listened to wisdom and, and grew up and then became powerful and then became hard-hearted. And he says, the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool. The ability to have power and influence and, and corrupt to be able to corrupt and to gain more riches turns a wise person into a fool. And a bribe corrupts the mind. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning um, because it's done, right? This idea of just, at least you're done, done suffering. A patient spirit, spirit is better than a proud spirit. We talked about that, how uh, in the New Testament context for the believer, you know, God calls us again and again to, to be patient, to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger because that is a... a, a a characteristic of someone who's walking in humility instead of a proud spirit. And so he says, a patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry. James talks about that and we covered this, right? Be slow to anger. Don't let your spirit rush to be anger for anger abides in the heart of fools. So there's some good wisdom intermixed with these different, you know, this idea of struggling, these different ideas of pessimism and optimism 
there's good wisdom here and ironic wisdom there. Um, it's difficult to kind of wade through. Verse 10, don't say, why were, there, why were the former days better than these, right? So easy to go, man, back in the 90s, when I could have my, what is those things called? My mullet, right? And it was, it was the economy was doing great. It was, it was, those were the days, right? Those, those were the days. And all of us have the days that of back of old where we go, man, I just wish it could be like that. Solomon's saying, it's not wise to ask this because you're denying reality. Today, 2021, is reality. That's where we live. The wise person understands that. Verse 11, wisdom is good as in an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. So he says wisdom is good, right? The knowledge and practically working out that knowledge in life and learning what is good versus what is bad is a good thing to those who are under the sun because wisdom is protection, right? To be wise can protect you from making some very bad decisions and the consequences of the decis- those decisions. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Uh, so it says it's wisdom is... Pr- because wisdom is protection as silver is protection. So he's saying wisdom is better than wealth or anything. So if you're using wealth to protect you, right, wisdom, no one can take that from you. Your wealth can be gone tomorrow. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom is the life of its owner. And so these are the, are the sayings, and um, we continue here in, in Ecclesiastes 7.13, but I just want to bring this, this to the... To the reality of this application of where we're going what i'm trying to pull out of this text for us today this is a chart from the pew research center of um when they researched how many people claim to be christian in 2009 it was 77 percent and then 2019 it's 65 percent and so i you might be wondering well you know why are we being so harsh on other people and so this is the reality that when our schools and our institutions and our society and our government supports this idea that there's really no meaning and purpose other than what we make of it, right? And they're propounding that to, to, our, to our kids and we see this kind of ideals, these ideals in television. This is the consequence. People walking away from God's true revealed purpose and meaning. I'm not saying all these people were Christian and no longer. I don't. I'm just saying we can see in the, this this uh, the survey that the idea of being Christian is be drastically being decreased as we march on into time in the, in America. This is conversely the people that are religiously unaffiliated has climbed the same ten percentage points or so from 2009 to 2000. In nineteen, twenty nineteen, um, probably the, one of the most disturbing estimates. The Lifeway did a a survey about uh, how many teens are leaving the Christian faith after they leave leave their homes. Seventy percent. I can't say it without crying. Seventy percent. Because this is the society that we live in who 
not only deny God, but actively work against him and his purposes. And so this would be sobering for us. This is what God has called us to, to be ambassadors in this world, to stand for his truth, for his purpose and his meaning, to proclaim the good news that you need to turn, reject what this world is proclaiming and receive Jesus because the gospel is the only true thing that we can find meaning and purpose and eternal life in. And so I think a lot of that is the church's inability to, to talk about these things, right? It would be much easier for me to come and give you a, a sermon on five ways you can make your marriage better, right? But then I would be rejecting the reality that we're in. I'd be rejecting and ignoring the fact that 70% of the youth of our church will leave the Christian faith if they're not taught and, and given an understanding of what is going on, the battle that is raging, and their need to encounter Jesus in a saving way so that they can live their life out for him and his purposes and find meaning and purpose in him. So Solomon concludes in verse 13 here, consider the work of God, right? Life is vanity, but he keeps pointing, he gets, keeps tugging us and pointing us back here every now and then, this, this hope. He gives us this little hope of what God is doing in and through it all. Consider the work of God. For who can straighten out what he has made crooked? That's where we find rest. God is at work. In in spite of the realities of what we're doing and where we're living and what's going on, God is at work. He says in verse 14, In the day of prosperity, be joyful when we're having a good time. Everything's good. Sun signs out, right? Be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. Solomon's again pointing this back to God. Everything's crooked and bent. God has allowed it to be crooked and bent. And no matter what political system we throw in, no matter what uh, humanitarian efforts we make, humanity, humans will not be able to make the crooked things straight. It is only the gospel. It is only God condescending, making himself known and his glory known through the gospel in which all that seems not right and is not right will be judged and restored in the days to come. And that is where we find hope and rest, that God is at work and it's God that will be doing the straightening. As we look to him, right? Solomon's conclusion, he's already given us, fear God. Walk with the understanding of who God is and what he's doing and his purpose in life. Walk in humility with God, knowing that we're not in control, God's in control. And this is, he's speaking to God's sovereignty over his creation. And this is where the Christian rests, even though we feel overwhelmed and, and like, God, I don't understand. This is where we can find rest. God is at work. In Ecclesiastes 3, he has, Jesus said, or Solomon said, uh, just before he gave us the bird song, right, every, to every season, uh, uh, turn, 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 uh, he says this, he, he, God has made everything appropriate in its time. God has made these things. He also has put, et- put eternity in their hearts, right? We have this idea and understanding that what we're going through right now isn't, shouldn't be the reality. 
This idea of shalom, this peace with God and peace with one another, eternity in our hearts has been broken through the fall and sin. And then he says this, and we've already covered that, but I, you know, this is what I love about God's progressive revelation because Solomon's back there in 10th century B.C. and goes, but no one can discover the work of God and what he has done from beginning to end. Well, guess what? We have God's completed revealed revelation we know that history is not circular, like Solomon sings it. We know there's a beginning and there's an end. There's an end coming. And God is at work and he has his purpose. We know that his purpose is through the gospel. And so we have a great benefit to understand what God is truly doing in his completed, revealed revelation, right? God uh, um, revealed his revelation through human history, not just all at once. And so we now stand waiting for the return of the Messiah, where he will not be uh, um, you know, a newborn babe, but he will come back and judge and make everything new and right. God is at work. Isaiah came probably three or 400 years after Solomon. He's a prophet. He gives, gets the words from God and proclaims them to God's people. And he says, remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no another. No other, I should say. I am God and no one is like me. There's only one God. And he is in control. He says, I declare the end from the beginning. Solomon's intention should be going out. Who knows what's going to happen in from the beginning? God does. He's already declared the end from the beginning. And from long ago, what is yet not done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Nothing will thwart our creator, God. And so Peter says, in the New Testament context, he's writing to these people that are, are uh, being persecuted. And so, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future, but, but the New Testament uh, scriptures that are calling us to stand firm are just screaming out to me lately, right? We need to stand firm for God and his truth. We need to be bold against the attacks of the devil, because ultimately that is what's going on. We are at a, in a spiritual war. Peter writes about this. In the same way, you who were younger, be subject to the elders. We had most of the youth there last night, so I made sure I emphasized that point. Kids, listen to the elders. All, you, all of you clothe yourself with humility. So these are the same concepts that we've been covering in, in Ecclesiastes, right? To be wrapped in humility with one another is being humble and understanding you're not in control. Instead, because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Look, if we want to need to stand firm, if, we, if that is what God is calling us to do in these, in these last days, then this is what we need to do. Be humble. Fear God. Walk with intention in His purposes and not our own. He goes on, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you at the proper time. To walk in humility is to fear God. Solomon concluded for us in Ecclesiastes. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you, right? The good news is, is as we seek God, as we draw near to God, the promises are, right? That is where we find our rest. Jesus said, come to me. All you are burdened and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So even though we're in a spirits of battle, our goal to stand firm is to keep our focus on and labor to enter into the rest that Jesus provides for us in his loving care. God loves you. 
He hasn't promised to deliver us from the hard times and the trials, unlike some would say. But he's promised to never to leave us or forsake us in them. Be sober-minded, he said. Be alert. To be wise is to understand what's truly at stake here. Our children's hearts are at stake. Our society is at stake. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone who can devour and the concept of humanity having no meaning and purpose is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. We are God's image bearers. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. We all have meaning and purpose. And it's found in seeking God's purpose in this world for his glory and for our good. Verse 9, resist him, stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Again, he's writing to a people that's being persecuted. And I, uh, if you look at church history, um, religion or Christianity in America has, has enjoyed a very long um, sabbatical of this thing of persecution. But if you look around the world, there is persecution. Our brothers and sisters are enduring persecution and have been enduring persecution since Christ went to the cross. And I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but if, I'm, if I just look at what's happening and the and continuing animosity and hatred being, being pointed towards Christianity, I would venture to say that there's probably some persecution coming. So what are we going to do? Are we going to just stick our head in the sand, pretend like, we just want everything to go back to like it was. Or are we just going to stand firm in the faith and draw near to God? Stand for him and his purposes. And then he gives us this comfort to know this is the promise for us if you're in Christ this morning. The God of all grace, unmerited love and favor, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore establish and strengthen and support you after you have suffered a little while. So if you're suffering this morning, if you're struggling this morning, I don't have a one, two, three, repeat after me kind of sermon that's going to make you feel better, but what I can tell you is draw near to God. Look to Him. Allow Him to strengthen you. Find rest in Him. To Him. To our eternal God be dominion forever. It may look like we're losing, but the promise is, and we know God has revealed to us, that God will um, be a victor in the end. And all those who are in Christ Jesus, right, already are positionally seated in the heavens with Christ. And so my question to you this morning is, what have you done with Christ? Where is your philosophy of, ma- of life? Is it found in your purposes and the purposes of this world, or is it found in the purposes that God has revealed in his word? I'd love to be able to talk to you about that. If you're struggling in that, please come and see me. But be encouraged. God is on the throne, and he will be victor. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the promise. Father, we thank you.
We thank you, Lord, for um, this opportunity to just uh, be reminded, God, of what's truly at stake and what is going on in this world. Uh, even though our eyes see 